Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knute Berger. And today, we'll talk about a remarkable emigration on the West Coast. We're familiar with Western emigration stories about the Oregon Trail or the brides of the so-called Mercer Girls. But another remarkable move took place on the eve of the Civil War. As black settlers on the West Coast faced increasingly racist laws, the colonial leader of what is now British Columbia convinced some 800 black settlers in San Francisco to move to Victoria to find freedom. If you haven't already seen the video, you can find it in the show notes or on crosscut.com. It'll make this conversation much more interesting if you watch it. But for now, let's dive in. Knut, what got you interested in this story? Yeah, Stephen, I've long been interested in the sort of pre-Civil War race politics of the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast. People think, well, gee, we didn't have slavery here or whatever, but we had exclusion laws and all kinds of things that came about in the 1840s and 1850s that made life very difficult for any people of color and black people specifically. And then some years ago, I was up doing some research in the um, British Columbia archives in Victoria. And as I was researching the 1850s, I kept coming across references to a, a black colony in Victoria. And I became very curious about that. So this story starts in California. It does. It starts in California because California came into the Union uh, as a free state without slavery. But many of the politicians running California including its first governor, a guy named Peter Burnett, were incredibly racist. And Peter Burnett was actually the author of the Oregon Lash Law. The Lash Law that said that black people would be publicly whipped up to 39 lashes every six months until we left. But he moved to California and got elected governor. And he pushed for a similar law in California. Many black people were moving to California in the 1840s because of the gold rush. I mean, they came like everybody else and um, established businesses. And But what they found was a legal landscape that was created largely by Southern Democrats that took away basic rights. There were poll taxes in some cases. They had no right to testify in court against a white person. And there were issues regarding the return of people who were enslaved in California and freeing them. It was a fact that there were enslavers who brought enslaved people to California. And the question rose as to whether those people should be returned or whether they should be freed. And there was a large contingent in California, including um, a growing black community, who said, no, we're not going to let this enslaved person go back south with their owner and be re-enslaved. If California is a free state, it's a free state. And therefore, that person is free once they're here. 
Did this ever come to a legal conclusion, a legal case? Yes, there was a court case. There was a gentleman from the South who had an enslaved boy named Archie Lee. And he was intending to go back to the South and take Archie with him. And the question arose as to whether Archie was free or not because he was in California, a free state. And this ended up going to court. The black community in California, at this time, we're talking about the late 1850s, there were about 4,000 black people in California. There were about 1,000 in San Francisco. There was another large black community in Sacramento. And they, with the help of um, some white attorneys, went to court to say he can't be returned. He's free here. He can make up his own mind as to where he is. And so this went through a series of legal challenges, and including going to the California Supreme Court. And guess who was on the California Supreme Court at that time? Peter Burnett. And um, <clears throat> the decision was, uh, the decisions actually went back and forth for a while. And poor Archie had to go stay in jail or be transferred from jail to jail as this thing worked its way through the court system. Ultimately, a federal magistrate freed Archie. So despite this uh, victory, if you can call it that, things were not great for black folks in San Francisco or California. What was life like? Yes, well, they had, uh, you know, they'd lost the right to testify against white people in court. Someone once described that is that uh, the best black man cannot testify against the worst white man. I think that there was frustrations already over things like uh, poll tax, children of color being prohibited from public schools. There were a whole host of issues that people were upset about. And the Archie Lee case just showed that the court system was uh, no guaranteed protection. And there was an invitation to many of the black residents of San Francisco by the governor of the colony of Vancouver Island up in Victoria. Which was a British colony. British colony. And he sent a letter saying, well, if you'd like to come up to a country where slavery is illegal and you can buy property and you can vote, you'll get your day in court, um, come on up. We need colonists. We need people to uh, immigrate here. It was sent to a group of black citizens in San Francisco, but it came from Sir James Douglas, who was the head of the colony, and he was also the um, head of the Hudson's Bay Company. And, of course, in the late 1850s, you know, the main business in Victoria was the Hudson Bay Company. Most people worked for the company. And he had previously been in Washington, what's now Washington State. He'd been... Um, chief factor there for the Hudson Bay Company. And he had sort of presided both when there was joint occupancy of the Oregon country by Britain and America, but America won the negotiations, got the border in the 1840s set at the 49th parallel with the exception of Vancouver Island. What do we know about James Douglas? 
Well, James Douglas was, of course, very powerful in the colony. Uh, he was a very experienced and longtime Hudson Bay operator. We know that he was a mixed race himself. His mother was a mixed race woman from the Caribbean, and uh, and he was married to uh, an indigenous woman, a woman who was part Cree and uh, part Irish. And the Hudson Bay Company had a much more sort of generous or tolerant attitude toward people of other races. A lot of indigenous people worked for them. Mixed race Métis worked for them. Those were people of indigenous and French ancestry. He, he was tracking the news of what was going on in the United States. He had dealt with pushy American, you know, people who had no trouble enslaving people. <laughs> And he wanted settlers to come and help build Victoria. This was in the 1850s? Yeah, we're talking about, at this point, we're talking about 1858. What was going on in Victoria or nearby that uh, would make James Douglas want to uh, import settlers? Yeah, well, the Fraser River Gold Rush. So, you know, just as the California Gold Rush created this influx of people into California— um, the same thing was starting to happen up in what is now British Columbia with the discovery of gold on the Fraser River. And uh, so people began flooding into the region. Now, at that time, the, the white population of Victoria was only a few hundred people. It was fairly small. And it grew to about 6,000 people within a year or two. So you can see that there was kind of a tidal wave of prospectors and uh, other coming his way. So did did this 800 black San Franciscans go to Victoria little by little, or was it uh, a, a fairly rapid migration? It was a fairly rapid migration. Now, um, not they weren't all from San Francisco, and there were, you know, more black people stayed behind than came. It, it was a risk, but you know they were they were enticed by this opportunity so a group of men went up first to make sure that uh governor douglas actually meant what he said some of them were able to buy property during that visit which was proof to them that they were welcome and the, yeah the bulk of them went up in 1858 which of course was right when the gold rush was taking off you know many of them were well employed they had businesses. They were uh, merchants. They were doctors, lawyers, well-educated. And then there were other people who moved up to start farms in the Vancouver Island, the lower Vancouver Island, or in the Gulf Islands. Um, some went to Salt Spring Island, which has a longtime black population. Were there any black residents of Victoria before then? If there were, it was negligible. And they represented the sort of first large ethnic group to intentionally immigrate to Victoria. There were people of other races there. In 1858, the first Chinese workers showed up in Victoria. There were Hawaiian workers who had been there for a long time and worked for the Hudson's Bay Company, though many of them then left and went to, back to Hawaii for various reasons. So... You know, you imagine Victoria at that time was going from a fairly small, tight-knit 
fur trading community to a larger gold rush and boomtown community. I'm wondering how the white locals responded to this. What what was the reaction? And when these black folks got there, were they was it a situation of, of segregation? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about that is that you know people respected what was happening because Douglas was more or less an autocrat. I mean, he was basically in charge of the colony, both its business and its politics. So he was a very powerful figure. And I think people wanted, like other frontier communities, I think they wanted growth. I think there were many people in Victoria who were very opposed to slavery. There was a strong contingent of uh, folks up there. And the laws were not like California's laws. So they walked into a situation where they had many more rights. And, you know, some of the colonists wrote to that effect, you know, that, you know, the irony is that it's under England that we're going to get the full rights promised to us by America. You know, there was a strong feeling that they they had been cheated by their home country. But in Victoria, I think they received an interesting kind of mix. There was some of the population was very welcoming. And many of the men were recruited to be part of the police department. So you had black policemen there. It seems remarkable in that age, even in this tolerant colony, that black people would be hired as police officers. Yeah, that is really interesting. They were hired as police officers. The first local militia was the Pioneer Rifle Corps, which was an all-black unit. There was a little bit of a history there because there had been a kind of private Hudson Bay militia um, some years previously called the Victoria Voltigeurs, and they were a mix of French and Iroquois people with ancestry of that, and that they were around for a few years to kind of keep order, but they were mainly concentrating on keeping order within the fur trade. And... I think having black policemen on the streets of Victoria was hard for some of the, particularly the newcomers, to accept. There was definite prejudice there. Was this black migration localized only to Victoria, or did they go other places in in uh, British Columbia? You mentioned Salt Spring Island, of course, which has long been a farming uh, island. Yes, uh, Salt Spring Island is one one place. And many went up to the Fraser River Gold Rush, so uh, into the B.C. interior. They were, you know, eager to make their fortune as well. So one of the men who went up um, at that time was William Gross, who was, gee, the, I think the second black resident of Seattle who came here in 1860. But he went from San Francisco to Victoria and then to up the Fraser River, settled there, looked for gold, and then ended up coming and settling in Seattle where he basically the founder of the black community in this city. If he hadn't left San Francisco for the same reasons that, or left California for the same reasons that the colonists did and gone to Canada and then come back, much of Seattle as we know it wouldn't exist. 
What was the civic life of these black pioneers? Were they included and involved in politics or other activities of civic life? Yeah. Many of the people who came from San Francisco were very civically involved there. They were, you know, there there was a large civil rights community in California. It was, well, let me say this, it was extensive. It was active. And it was pushing back against the, the sort of Southern Democrat regime that had the Supreme Court and the governorship and controlled the legislature. They didn't get everything they wanted in the legislature. And those people didn't retire their civic activism when they went up there. So one of the main um, people who participated in the migration was Mifflin Wistar Gibbs. He had played a critical role in raising money for the Archie Lee case. He was a, a successful merchant And in Victoria, he ended up getting elected to the city council and also played a role in the negotiations to unify what was Vancouver Island with mainland British Columbia into a single province. So he played a very early significant role in that. And, you know, he, yeah, he was a a spokesman for the community. The interesting thing about Gibbs is He was a free black from New York and had toured upstate New York as as assistant, as right-hand man to Frederick Douglass, taking the message of abolition. This was before he went to California. So he was a strong anti-slavery advocate working with, you know, people of that uh, stature very early on. And this was true of some of the others who went to California and then to Victoria. Gibbs captured the promise that Victoria offered. I cannot describe, he wrote in his memoir, with what joy we hail the opportunity to enjoy the liberty under the British lion denied us beneath the pinions of the American eagle. I read another quote from someone who called Canada land of the free and home of the brave, right out of the national anthem. There was this strong sense that Canada was going to fulfill the opportunity that America had taken away were never offered in the first place. And this was a driving force for many of the people who moved up there. Were there any black people that came from other places other than California to Victoria to seek the same opportunities? Well, I'm sure there were on on an individual basis, but there's one that stands out in particular. And this is a story that's only really been resurfaced in the last decade or so. And it's a story of Charles Mitchell, who was a boy who was the enslaved property, I put that in quotes, of a man named James Tilton, who had received an appointment, I think is I think he was surveyor official government surveyor of the Washington Territory. And he came from a a family that owned enslaved people and brought uh, Charlie with him. And 
the way that relates to Victoria is that there were a number of uh, Victorian um, black workers working on a, on the steamship that plied between Olympia, Seattle, and Victoria. And they caught wind that there was this boy, you know, who was not free here in Washington Territory. They smuggled him on board the steamship and took him to Victoria. But before he got to Victoria, the captain and crew of the steamship discovered this boy and what his status was, as they viewed it, a fleeing slave. And so uh, they were going to turn him over or take him back. And uh, But they got him on shore, and people were alerted that this was going on, and a crowd formed, and lawyers came, and they were able to get him um, put in the local jail and then freed the next morning. And the court basically said, or the magistrate basically said, there is no such thing as slavery here, and therefore he's free. So it's one of the only cases of this, the Underground Railroad in the Pacific Northwest. But it came about because of the black workers on the steamship who were part of that California migration. But that community ended up dissipating. The black colony, so-called, eventually kind of was either absorbed into the greater Canada or, in many cases, after the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery, people chose to go back to America. That Reconstruction would offer them the freedoms and the liberty and the opportunity that, that they'd been denied for so long. Yes, exactly. I think the Reconstruction amendments to the Constitution guaranteeing them rights and the victory of the Civil War, the end, the Emancipation Proclamation. These things were watched very carefully and the promise of being able to go back to their home country. And so Gibbs, for example, um, he came back. He, he became, during Reconstruction, the first elected black judge. He was elected a judge in Arkansas. And he was a later appointed a, uh, to a consular position in Madagascar. So he, he had an international diplomacy um, credit. So some of these people went on to great success when they came back. You and I worked on uh, a previous segment about Horace Caton and Susie Revels, who settled in Seattle and were very influential in the Republican Party and were newspaper publishers. And... Shortly after the turn of the century, they lived on Capitol Hill um, in, in what is now a historic residence. Another wave of racism and prejudice blew through the city, and they, their business was ended, and they were driven off Capitol Hill, and their lives were, were changed. Did the same thing happen in Victoria? Yes, but in an entirely different time period because, you know, one of the things that Douglas was afraid of was that Americans would annex more of Canada. I mean, he had been driven out of the Columbia country, and this was one of the tensions in the Pig War was who was going to get the San Juan Islands. Well, when these people went to Canada, that was still an unsettled question. He was still looking 
to America as a potential threat. The Fraser River Gold Rush suddenly saw massive numbers of these, um, you know, white working class people flooding in and basically taking over the town. And, you know, so he was trying to guard against that. But I think he also was very aware that they were bringing prejudices and biases that was that made his his black colony proposal really problematic. Black people began to get banned from churches, theaters. There was more and more struggle over that. And I think, you know, Britain had its own <laughs> white supremacy issues. It's not like they were they were a better alternative than California, that's for sure. But it, it wasn't the promised land. Did this in any way pave the way for further immigration to Canada, for instance, uh, from East Asia in the modern era? Well, it's interesting because all of the problems that came up for immigrant groups in that period, the Chinese, black Americans, people from other parts of Asia. You know, we talk about the China, there was the Chinese exclusion here. There was also, both here in British Columbia, there was a Hindu exclusion. Um, there were riots to keep uh, people from India out. And some of these immigration paths were easier within the British Empire because it encompassed such a large diversity of countries, so immigration. But they faced, you know, enormous prejudice, enormous... I mean, I mentioned Peter Burnett, the governor of California. Not only did he try to get a lash law passed in California, but he was a proponent of Chinese exclusion. But we're talking about, you know, the 1850s. We're talking about really pioneering some of these ideas. So I think all the same obstacles and pushback over a century or so you find in both countries. I'd venture that this story of the Black Victorians is, is unknown to most Americans, to most people south of the border. Does the story have more presence of mind among Canadians, among British Columbians? Yes. I, I don't know, except that I know um, there have been books written about it. There's some uh, plaques and monuments about it in Victoria. Um, it's, it's not entirely erased. There have also been scholarly works written about it. And in more recent years, there's been more written about it in the United States. There's a book, for example, about the Archie Lee case that explains why, you know, what led to this sort of crisis moment that caused these folks to seek greener pastures in Canada. So I think, I think it's, it's more out there as people look at the black experience in the West and racial exclusion in the West but it's nothing anybody's taught in school. I came across it mainly looking at, you know, the Victoria columnist from 1859, you know. <laughs> I mean, 
obscure references. It's, uh, but it has been, it's been written about sort of at the scholarly level. And I think there's awareness in, in BC about it. Well, one thing that, I, that I'm interested in is the church is the center of black community in so many places. Did churches in San Francisco help with this exodus? And did black people form similar churches, church organizations in Victoria? Well, I can speak to that. Um, one of the sort of powerful civic presences in San Francisco was the Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And the pastor there, J.J. Moore, really helped lead the charge for raising the legal defense funds for Archie Lee. And, yeah, he, he said that the immigrants, we were looking for justice, suffrage, and the right to happy homes. And that, to me, is a very powerful line about what the bottom line was. We have a right to the pursuit of happiness. We have the right to happy homes. And I think this was one of those issues is can we, you know, can we ever be happy in this society and with these rules and strictures? So he continued to be a major figure in in Victoria. He also was one among those who came back to the United States where he wrote a history of the Zion Church in America. What is the importance of this story today, and what is the legacy of some of these people who braved this journey and lived in Victoria? Well, I think the story is important for a bunch of different reasons that that are important for people to think about now. I mean, one is how bad things were for black people in the West and in the Pacific Northwest in that period leading up to the Civil War and after. Um, it's a part of our regional history that we tend to overlook. And, and that's one of the driving things. What would make a substantial number of black Californians leave their country. And it just highlights the difference between the way America was treating people and the way what became British Columbia was treating people. So I think that's important because I think we have a too prettified picture of, oh, they, our people came out on the Oregon Trail and they built their homesteads and and that the West was this land of uh, opportunity, individualism, and you can be who you want to be. That's right. But if you were a person of color, you couldn't get a homestead. You know? I mean, it's it only applies to a very narrow band of people. And I think it's important to realize that that goes back to the founding of the region. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9, 
every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback Podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>